Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for reverence in worship. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. My companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Chaplain Sean Denzer. He is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain for the International Center of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in St. Louis, Missouri. Chaplain Denzer, welcome back to Concord Matters. Great to be back with you, Sean. Yeah, certainly a great joy and honor to have you back on this week as we continue this little series within a series with you as we're looking at the confessional principles that inform our worship life together as Lutheran Christians. And we started looking at this last week as we began with you, some definitions of the words that we use and how scripture and thus our Lutheran confessions talk about worship. And I really appreciated how you brought that all to a real clear point for us last week as you took us to Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, in a beautiful section that defines worship so clearly for us. And you stated so well, worship that the scriptures are concerned with is the worship of faith, faith that receives the benefits offered and promised by God. And that is really the foundation of worship for us as Lutheran Christians and thus informs everything that we talk about with regards to worship. And we began to see some of that right at the end of the show as we got into looking at how the Lutheran confessions use faith as the foundational principle for our understanding of various details of a church service. And then we looked at a section from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 15 of Human Traditions. And then right at the end of the show last week, you previewed for us that today we would jump into some of these details a little more and talk maybe about the general thing that ties them all together, which is reverence and attitude, you said, that we have in worship. And you said that we would find out that really what we've talked about last week, the hearing of faith as that foundational principle, really then guides us in the fruits of that in those details that we see, especially with regards to reverence. So as we jump into this today, how do you want us to get started in talking about reverence in worship here? Well, I think it's going to help to look at what the Reformers had to say about the Mass. So we're going to look at the Augsburg Confession first, Augsburg Confession, Article 24, and we'll start right at the beginning. And if the listeners want to flip to that, as well as the Apology 24, which is sometimes labeled as 12 on the Mass as well, we'll be looking at these two for most of the day, and we'll look at some other sections too. And like you said, we're going to talk about reverence, this attitude that usually we think of characterized less by something in a person so much as it is by the actions they take, by the attitudes that they exhibit with their actions and with their words, even by the decorations and dress that might be going on. And as we discuss that issue of reverence, we're going to see how, again, distinction is very important here. 
notice I talked almost entirely about external things that we're saying, doing, wearing, building. The church building itself is part of reverence. And it's easy then to get distracted by those things and miss what's at the heart of it all, which, as we talked about last time, is faith itself. Today, we're going to be talking about faith, I think, in a broader sense. When we speak as Lutherans about faith, like it does in Article 4, we're not talking about anything that a human does, not a work or an effort that we put forward, but we're talking about the reception of what the Lord gives in his promises, that faith itself is created by the promises of God. It's worked in us by the Holy Spirit. It is the passive receiving of somebody else's work, of God's work in Christ Jesus. But faith is active and living. The book of Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But then it goes on, for example, in chapter 11, talking about all of these great train of saints throughout the Old Testament. And it talks both about their faith, their trust in God, as well as the bold actions that they take as a result of that faith. And so when we speak about faith, we're always going to be primarily concerned with receiving the word of God, believing it, trusting it with our heart, which by no means is some effort of ours. At the same time, we're also going to be interested in what fruits that faith expresses, how that faith responds in an external way as well. Not because the external by itself matters, but because faith and its fruits belong together. Absolutely. And so that brings us all right back to Christ and what he has done and accomplished for us. And we talked at great length last week about how that really distinguishes us, not just at the time of the Reformation, which maybe in some of the external things that we see sometimes, especially today, we would see some of those external things and say, well, a lot of people say, well, you're really Roman Catholic. And it's like, well, but we have a different understanding of how we look at those external things. And so I think we'll see some of that come out today, but then does distinguish us from other Christians out there who just have this different understanding of worship. And we really talked a lot about how we see the general idea out there is what we do towards God. And I like how you focus us once again, how faith is receiving from God. That's how scripture talks about it. That's how our Lutheran confessions talk about it. And so yeah, it's going to be great to dig into this then as we see that play out. And you said Augsburg Confession, Article 24 on the Mass. Do you want me to go ahead and read the first paragraphs there? Yeah, we'll read paragraphs one through nine. And just for our listeners, this word mass is common even today among the Roman Catholics. It's less common in America among Lutherans. But you'll see from the outset, we're not going to throw this word out, but it's helpful maybe for us to understand what they mean when they're talking about mass. I think we'll see it as they discuss it. But the mass here is the divine service, as we often call it today, the chief service of the Christian church, which has Holy Communion as a centerpiece of it. This is the service that most of our Lutheran churches continue to do every Sunday, and we'll see if that's exactly what they're interested in confessing here. Go right ahead. Sure. Once again, I think you redeemed really well for us last week. A lot of the words that we use and some of them that have been discarded, and I think you've done an excellent job of that, and especially a good reminder as we jump into this article then on the Mass. Once again, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord available to you from Concordia Publishing House, a publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is the Augsburg Confession, Article 24 of the Mass, beginning with paragraph one. Our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the Mass. The Mass is held among us as celebrated with the highest reverence. Nearly all the usual ceremonies are also preserved, except that the parts sung in Latin are interspersed here and there with German hymns. These have been added to teach the people, for ceremonies are needed for this reason alone, that the uneducated be taught what they need to know about Christ. 
Not only has Paul commanded that a language understood by the people be used in the church, citing 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2 and 9, but human law has also commanded it. All those able to do so partake of the sacrament together. This also increases the reverence and devotion of public worship. No one is admitted to the sacrament without first being examined. The people are also advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament, about how it brings great consolation to anxious consciences, so that they too may learn to believe God and to expect and ask from him all that is good. This worship pleases God, citing Colossians 1 verses 9 through 10. Such use of the sacrament nourishes true devotion toward God. Therefore, it does not appear that the Mass is more devoutly celebrated among our adversaries than among us. So you see how this section of the Confession, just introducing this topic of the Mass, says both at the beginning and at the end, among us, this Mass, this divine service, is celebrated with the highest reverence, and it certainly doesn't seem that it's celebrated less devoutly among us. See, the Roman Catholics had accused the Lutherans of omitting parts of the service, of changing the worship, and making it less reverent, probably because they got rid of some of the most dramatic ceremonies and some of the longest parts that the priest would read. And they're going to make the argument, no, that's not actually what makes for great reverence. Now, look at how they're at pains to say, look, the ceremonies have been kept, almost all of the normal ones. In fact, we haven't even gotten rid of singing in Latin. That would have been the intro at the gradual, perhaps even some of the readings and the prayers in Latin. But in the midst of that, they also sing German hymns. And so you see, ceremonies are still very much a part of what's going on and at the center of the Lutheran Mass, the Lutheran Divine Service, is still the administration of the Lord's Supper. But what is it that is different about our service? And it says it here in a couple places. It says, the ceremonies that we keep are needed for this reason alone, that the uneducated be taught what they need to know about Christ. When it comes to Latin, they say, they remind us what Paul says about in his congregation in Corinth, how they were speaking in many different tongues. And Paul says, forget that. The most important thing is we need to understand what's going on. I'd rather speak five words intelligibly than speak thousands of words using a tongue with no one there to translate it. So in the same way, everything that the Lutherans are doing is for the sake of understanding. And why? So that people can believe and know what it is they're doing in the service, right? When it comes to the Lord's Supper, they talk about no one being admitted to the sacrament without first being examined. Elsewhere in the scripture or in the confessions, it says instructed, examined, and absolved. What is it that's being examined about them? It is that they actually understand what's going on, that they have faith, that they know what it is they're here for and what the purpose of it is. And this is what increases the dignity of the Lutheran services. And at the turn of my page is in paragraph seven is the key part. The people are also advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament and how it brings great consolation to anxious consciences so that they too may learn to believe God, to expect and ask from him all that is good. This kind of use of the sacrament nourishes true devotion toward God. And that's what leads them to say, so we're plenty devout. We're plenty reverent in our service. The real reverence is faith receiving the gifts of God. That is the purpose of worship. And the means by which we achieve, the means by which we encourage and strengthen faith, that is knowing what's going on, appreciating the, the words and the gifts that are happening in the Lord's Supper, is by teaching and by getting the mind and the heart of everybody there to participate in what's going on. 
And that doesn't mean we have to get rid of ceremonies, but it means we don't do ceremonies for ceremony's sake. We do them with this in mind, that we're always going to be instructing and nourishing faith. As it relates to that, then, I think, and, and this might be sidestepping, kind of laying those principles again, which you're doing so well for us, but I think is important to bring in at this point that as we have retained a lot of those ceremonies and a lot of the things that we do see, and a lot of times, again, folks will look at our worship services conducted with high reverence and a lot of the external things that you see looking the same, and they'll say, oh, that's Roman Catholic. And as I suppose can always be the danger in any ceremony, you can just kind of go through the motions and historically pietism came in and kind of said, well, you know, kind of became dried up worship. And so they tried to innovate and bring some things that would bring that kind of devotion out again. How would you respond to that? What would you say, how do we handle the fact that these ceremonies are retained with our focus on faith, and yet there is that danger that it can kind of just become going through the motions or things that we wear that we kind of like to show off, you know, our vestments or things like that? I think you said a few different things there. One, this issue of whether something is Roman Catholic or not. It very well might be Roman Catholic to read the gospel, to have any kind of ceremony in church. The Roman Catholics observe the Lord's Supper. They do it every Sunday. That's something our confessions say we ought to do also. Our approach to worship is not to try and do the opposite of whatever they do. And it's an important assertion of our confessors in the Lutheran Church that we're not trying to start a new church. We're not trying to react against what came before us. In fact, if anything, we're trying to push through some clutter that's new and seize upon what really is the heart of the matter in Christian worship. Our goal is to recover true Catholic worship, which is our conviction has been cluttered up by a lot of particular Roman things as of late. And I'm speaking as if if we were in the 16th century here with our confessors. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of things that we retain, but the things we retain, we're going to retain for this value. This is going to be our principle, our touchstone by which we retain it and receive it is that it is useful for teaching. It is something we want to help people participate in so that faith can be strengthened and nourished. Now, the second thing you mentioned is what do we do about the danger of going through the motions? I get it. Luther in the large catechism talks eloquently and humorously about how the Lord's Prayer is the biggest martyr on earth because people just, you know, go through the words, they're halfway through, and it's like driving to work where you don't remember stopping in any lights. You don't know how you got here. You were just going through the motions. You're on autopilot. And Luther's against that. I think everybody in their right mind would be against that because we don't want to be mindlessly disconnected from this. But the hard answer is it's on you if you're just going through the motions. It's on me whenever I get bored with God's word or whenever I, like we said, just do the motions and forget about thinking about it or believing it. And that's a real sin. We should repent of that. The way to be engaged, though, is to ask the Holy Spirit to be with us, of course, and to apply ourselves to it. And the worship service is actually geared to help with that. In this sense, what you put into worship will help you get more out of it. That isn't to say that you have to do works in order to make God meet you halfway. But it does mean if you're not listening, you're going to miss it. 
the formula talks about this actually when it gets into election and in this question of what is the order of salvation? How is it that we can be saved? How can we be certain of election? And it talks about God elects us through means. God brings the word to us. He creates faith in our hearts. He nourishes it with his Holy Spirit and his sacraments. He brings us into the life of good works. He calls us through repentance back to forgiveness again. And this is the way by which he brings us into the faith and keeps us in the faith. And the person who would grab onto election and then say, well, I don't have to go to church because I'm elect, is missing the whole point. Church is the place where the word of God is spoken. That's how you're going to hear it. And yes, I suppose you could always sit in the pew with your ears closed and get nothing out of worship. That is the sinful, evil human heart at work. But I'm confident that people listening to us are not trying to be those kind of fake Christians. They're very interested in hearing the word of God. Well, apply yourself. The promise is that the word of God will do its work. When the Lord sends it, it'll accomplish that for which he purposes it. I'm going to read a quick quote from the Large Catechism by Luther. This is on the Third Commandment. If you're interested in looking at its context later, you can go to the Large Catechism, and this is paragraph 94 in the first part on the Ten Commandments. Luther says, you should note this about the Third Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The force and power of this commandment lies not in the resting, right? You should do no work on the seventh day, but in the sanctifying so that the special holy exercise belongs to this day. For other works and occupations are not properly called holy exercises unless the person is holy first. But here's a work that's to be done by which a person is himself made holy. And this is done, as we've heard, only through God's word. For this reason, particular places, times, persons, and the entire outward order of worship, think ceremonies, think church service, the mass, have been created and appointed so that there may be order in public practice. So much depends on God's word, because without it, no holy day can be sanctified. So you see what Luther is saying is the work of the third commandment is God's work. It's the work that's done by the word of God. And everything that we have ordered to get us to church, to have us in the pew, to have us saying our parts, to have the pastor talking to us, to have the Lord's Supper administered, this is all so that God's word can be doing its sanctifying work. And this is going to be then the key to reverence, to let the word be the driving force, to let that doctrine of justification by grace through faith for Christ's sake be the touchstone of Christian worship, that it's always constantly bringing this message to our ears, waking up our dull, bored hearts and uh, enlivening us not with some human action so much as with the word of God. Which beautifully, again, brings us back to what you said so well earlier. Once again, the real reverence, the devotion is faith. It's focused on Christ and receiving those wonderful gifts that he has to bring to us. That's our worship. And I was also reminded of this past Sunday, the readings, Luke chapter 14, 1 through 11, in my congregations, I use the one-year lectionary, and that was the gospel reading. But that beautiful story of Christ healing on the Sabbath, and he focuses us exactly what Luther confesses so well. I love how you brought in the large catechism there and talking about the third commandment. What is the nature of that rest and what does the work? It's Christ doing the work for us on the Sabbath, and that's what we receive in worship. And wonderfully answers, once again, even those common things that are thrown at us of being too Catholic or when it becomes just going through the motions, I think you answered that really well. And the goal is to once again recover what is truly Catholic, which is the reception of Christ. That's the universal Christian faith. That's what Catholic means, right? 
Yeah, I think uh, we could probably go to the apologies take on Article 24. This is still on the Mass. And this is, of course, the Lutheran response to the Roman confutation, their uh, attempt at refuting the Augsburg Confession, which didn't go very well for them, actually. So if you'd like to find that, we'll read just a couple isolated paragraphs and maybe have to continue it after the break, too. Sure. So this is Article 24 from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. We'll just take paragraph one here. At the outset, we must again make this preliminary statement. We do not abolish the Mass, but religiously keep and defend it. Masses are celebrated among us every Lord's Day and on the other festivals. The sacrament is offered to those who wish to use it after they have been examined and absolved, and the usual public ceremonies are observed, a series of lessons, of prayers, vestments, and other such things. Again, more of what we've heard before, kind of reiterated in a short way, but we see that all of this is together, right? This is part of reverence. That's why the ceremonies, order of lessons, prayers have been kept, for the sake of reverence. But reverence is not just the doing of the stuff. Reverence is the believing of what is being given. And that's why those who come to the sacrament, those who wish to use it, they come already expecting something. So I suppose their hearts are not dull and they're not just going through the motions. That's the assertion here. And they've been examined and absolved so that this is further ascertained, that they're not just walking in off the street because they were bored, because they're seeking God's word. I'll jump down a little bit to paragraph three. However, ceremonies should be celebrated to teach people scripture, that those admonished by the word may conceive faith and godly fear and may also pray. This is the intent of ceremonies. This sentence is so perfect to capture again what we're getting at with reverence and why ceremonies are part of it, but why they are not all of it, right? The ceremonies are useful because they're teaching the word of God, and the word of God is what conceives faith and godly fear and every fruit of it, prayers, the life of good works, all of that comes out of that. That's the intent of ceremonies. So when faith is being nourished with the ceremonies, it is all a wonderful act. When faith is not being nourished or when it's absent or when it's considered unnecessary, that's when ceremonies become not good has nothing to do with being Roman Catholic or being foreign to our current way of life. In fact, if we're going to create faith, it's going to have to be something that's almost otherworldly because it's going to be the Lord's doing, not our human doing. But what makes it devastating is when faith is missing. And that's what we'll continue on to talk more about. All right. Well, that's a good place to go ahead and pause then. We'll take a break here and we'll pick up more of this discussion of reverence and worship all grounded in faith when we come back after this break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUR. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross. Concord Matters as we continue talking with Chaplain Sean Denzer, and we are in Apology 24 as we continue talking about Concord Matters for Reverence and Worship. 
And Chaplain Denzer, you were walking us through Apology 24 here. Go ahead and continue doing so for us. Sure. We're going to skip a little bit to paragraph 27. And uh, while you're getting there, I'll give you a summary of what we're jumping over. It's a little tangential to what we're talking about, but it's dealing with the Roman Catholic understanding of sacrifice, that the Mass, and particularly we mean here the Lord's Supper itself, is an offering of a sacrifice by the aptly named priest to God rather than what Jesus gives it as a gift, that this is given and shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that it's something he's feeding us with. And so Melanchthon talks about how there are two types of sacrifices that he distinguishes, atoning sacrifices and Eucharistic, that means thanksgiving sacrifices. There's really only one true atoning sacrifice, he says, and that's the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It happened once, And atoning means it accomplishes, it wins the forgiveness of sins. Talks a little bit about how the temple sacrifices in the Old Testament did that by their connection to Jesus. But in a real way, Jesus is the one true sacrifice that is atoning. Now, what about Eucharistic, that is, sacrifices of thanksgiving? These are good works. These are the life, the fruits that come out of faith. And yet, he says, even the Eucharistic sacrifices are in faith. And then he introduces this important phrase that we're going to talk about. It's a Latin phrase that we're going to teach, and it is ex opera operato. What we're interested in is not ex opera operato worship. What's that mean? It literally means out of the doing it is done, or out of the work it works. And it's this is the, the going through the motions idea that a lot of people have, except with something a little more insidious, that when you do the thing, that's what counts. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to do it right. It doesn't even matter you know, how sincere you are. All that matters is when you do it, it does the job. And that's the worst kind of going through the motions that our confessors are going to argue. So we'll pick up at uh, paragraph 27, and I think you can read for us, Sean. Okay, so this is Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 24, Paragraph 27. In short, the worship of the New Testament is spiritual. It is the righteousness of faith in the heart and the fruit of faith. Why do they call it spiritual? They call it spiritual because the Holy Spirit is the one doing this, right? This is what faith is, the creation of the Holy Spirit in the heart and then the fruits of that faith that come out of it. Go ahead. New Testament worship sets aside Levitical services. Christ says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, but the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, citing John 4, 23-24. This passage clearly condemns opinions about sacrifices that, as the adversaries imagine, benefit by the outward act, ex opere operato. In contrast, it teaches that people should worship in spirit, that is, with the inclinations of the heart and by faith. There we go. So ex opera operato, here this brief definition, it benefits just by doing the outward act. It doesn't matter what your heart's thinking, what your mind is doing. And we say, no, that's not reverent. In fact, that's one of the most irreverent ways to worship is just to go through the motions and to not be thinking about it. We want to nourish faith. That's why all of our preaching and our activity is going to be aimed at that. That's the kind of reverence we're after. Would you continue at uh, paragraph 30? Sure. Picking up with paragraph 30. Scripture is full of such references that teach that sacrifices by the outward act, ex opera operato, do not reconcile God. Since Levitical services have been repealed, the New Testament teaches that new and pure sacrifices will be made. Faith, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, the preaching of the gospel, troubles on account of the gospel, and the like. 
I love this because it starts with faith. This is God's work in us by the word of God. But then he throws in together with it all of the fruits of that faith, prayer, that we ask God for everything. That's faith in action, exercise. Thanksgiving, this is now praise that we offer. Confession, which can be in both directions, that we're confessing our sins and asking for forgiveness, but also that we're confessing the faith boldly, as you and I are doing right now. The preaching of the gospel. What is it that causes pastors to do their work? It is that they themselves believe this gospel and are strengthened by it and can't help but preach, as the apostles say in the book of Acts. And even troubles on account of the gospel, what does that mean? It means suffering the cross. It means enduring hardships for the name of Jesus. All of these, then, are true worship, and these are all fruits that flow out of faith. And so where that faith is present, with all of its concomitants, all of these fruits, that's where we have reverent worship. We can pick up, I think, at the second half of paragraph 34 and read also through 35. Sure. But everywhere, the adversaries wrongly apply the name sacrifice to the ceremony alone. They leave out the preaching of the gospel, faith, prayer, and similar things, although the ceremony has been established because of these. The New Testament should have sacrifices of the heart, not ceremonies for sin that are to be performed like the Levitical priesthood. It's a little difficult here because they're making two arguments at the same time, and we've kind of skipped the one about sacrifice and the Levites. But what they're attacking here, what our Lutherans are attacking about the Catholics here is, even if we were to accept this notion of sacrifice in the Mass, sacrifice has to come out of faith. Otherwise, it's just going through the motions. And that's what they're trying to say here. Our adversaries don't talk at all about the gospel, faith, prayer, or all of these things. And so, so even when they're discussing sacrifice, as if that were the point of the Mass, the point of the divine service, they treat it as if it were just a ceremony that needs to be done by somebody. We care about the real sacrifices which have their origin in the heart. Think about what Paul says in Romans 12, that our whole lives are to be offered as spiritual, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This happens by faith. Go ahead, paragraph 35. Sure. Paragraph 35. They cite also the daily sacrifice. See Exodus 29, 38 through 39, Daniel 8, 11, and 12, 11. Just as there was a daily sacrifice in the law, so the mass should be a daily sacrifice of the New Testament. That's their argument. The adversaries have made out well if we allow ourselves to be overcome by allegories. Clearly, allegories do not produce firm proofs. We readily allow the Mass to be understood as a daily sacrifice, as long as that includes the entire Mass, the ceremony with the preaching of the gospel, faith, invocation, and thanksgiving. Joined together, these are a daily sacrifice of the New Testament because the ceremony of the Mass or the Lord's Supper was set up because of these things. The Mass is not to be separated from them. So Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11.26 But it cannot be shown from this Levitical type that a ceremony justifying by the outward work, ex operato, is necessary or should be applied on behalf of others, that it may merit the forgiveness of sins for them. Okay, so we're willing to admit that the Mass can be counted as a sacrifice, 
but it's going to have to be a Eucharistic sacrifice because what's done in worship is not atoning for anybody's sins, in the New Testament at least, because Christ has done that entirely. And we can't just uh, say that because in the Old Testament they did daily sacrifices, therefore there's got to be something corresponding to that one for one in the New Testament. Nope, something different has happened, and that's that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has offered his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. What about this Eucharistic sacrifice of the divine service that we're going to call the entire worship service of a Christian a thanksgiving sacrifice? That can only be done if we have faith at the heart of it. If faith, the real reverence in trusting and believing the word of God, is the source of all of the activities of thanksgiving. This is kind of like the trouble of trying to teach your children to be thankful. And sometimes we're only good at teaching them to write the thank you letter or say the words, whether they believe it, care about it, are actually grateful or not. It's good for parents to teach their children this. But every mother knows they're really not interested in hearing those vocables come out of the kid's mouth. They're interested in cultivating a heart of gratitude. We Lutherans are concerned about the same thing. So if you want to call the divine service a sacrifice, a daily sacrifice even, fine. But make sure that you're attending not just to the outward work, but to faith. That's how you'll get true reverence. Real quick, I want to interject there. Do you think it's fair to bring this point in too, especially with the connection with the Old Testament, that as we see, certainly when Jesus comes, and also referenced in Hebrews, that it's faith that was the main thing, if you will, in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. I mean, just doing and offering the sacrifices weren't really accomplishing anything in and of themselves. And we see Jesus himself get displeased with this. And that also, even in the Old Testament, it says, you know, your sacrifices are worthless to me, specifically because the main thing is the trust in the promise of God that by offering the sacrifice, he does something. He's still doing the work in it. And so that is the connection then for us in understanding this as a sacrifice, redeeming that word once again in our New Testament age, is that it's still the thing is faith, which trusts the promise of God that he'll do and deliver through this to us what he promises. Yeah, we're going to see that a little bit in what we're going to talk about. And if our read, our listeners want to read the entire section, they'll see that this is in a lot of what we're skipping too. All of the times in the Old Testament, I'm sure our listeners remember a few of them, where God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your burnt offerings. Sacrifice have I not required. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, right? See, God was already saying in the Old Testament, just going through the motions, but being miserable, unfaithful, unbelieving people, that doesn't gain you any benefit. And that's almost what was being said at the time of the Reformation. That's what we're attacking for the sake of recovering faith. I'm going to skip a little bit to section 44, and I'll read for a while here. In the confutation, that's the Roman Catholic response, the adversaries fuss over the desertion of churches. Altars stand unadorned, lacking candles and images. They regard these trifles as ornaments to churches. It's a far different desertion that Daniel means in chapter 11 and 12, namely ignorance of the gospel. Overwhelmed by the multitude and variety of traditions and opinions, the people were in no way able to welcome the sum of Christian doctrine. Among the people, whoever understood the doctrine of repentance as presented by our opponents, the Roman Catholics, and yet this is the very chief doctrine of Christian teaching. Consciences were tormented by the listing of offenses and satisfactions. Our adversaries never mentioned faith, by which we freely receive the forgiveness of sins. All the books and the sermons of the adversaries were silent about the exercises of faith such as struggling with despair or the free forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. 
To these, the horrible profanation of the masses and many other godless services in the churches were added. This is the desertion described by Daniel, right? What's the abomination? It's not that maybe the Lutherans don't have as many candles as they did formerly. The abomination is when faith itself is lost so that you're just going through some motions that you don't even understand what's going on and you wouldn't know why God wants it. On the contrary, this is paragraph 48, by God's favor, our priests, our Lutheran pastors, attend to the ministry of the word, teach the gospel about Christ's blessings, show that the forgiveness of sins happens freely for Christ's sake, i.e. not for the sake of doing these works in church. This doctrine brings sure comfort to consciences. The doctrine of good works that God commands is also added. The worth and use of the sacraments are declared. If the daily sacrifice was the proper use of the sacrament, we would keep that sacrifice. The adversaries actually wouldn't because their priests use the sacrament to make money. There's a more frequent and more conscientious use. That's the one we're doing, he's arguing. The people use it after first being instructed and examined. People are taught about the true use of the sacrament. That's the Lord's Supper. And it was set up to be a seal and a testimony of the free forgiveness of sins. And so that it should be remind alarmed consciences to be truly confident and believe that their sins are freely forgiven. Since we keep both the preaching of the gospel and the lawful use of the sacrament, the daily sacrifice remains with us. Hope you can catch that kind of clever argument they're making. Fine, who, which of us are really doing the true worship? We are. We're doing the more reverent worship. You won't be able to figure that out by how many candles are on the altar. We've got plenty of candles, too, if you think you need those. But you'll find it out by where the preaching is focused on faith so that people are able to come and participate in this service with heart and mind and body. And that's the proper use of the Lord's Supper. Okay, do you want to maybe read 50 and 51 for us? Sure, 50 and 51 then. If we must speak of outward appearances, church attendance among us is better than among the adversaries. The audiences are held by useful and clear sermons. Neither the people nor the teachers have ever understood the doctrine of the adversaries. There is nothing that keeps people at church more than good preaching. The true adornment of the churches is godly, useful, and clear doctrine, the devout use of the sacraments, fervent prayer, and the like. Candles, golden vessels, similar adornments are fitting, but they are not the specifically unique adornment belonging to the church. If the adversaries make these things the focus of worship and not the preaching of the gospel and faith and the struggles of faith, they are to be numbered among those whom Daniel describes as worshiping their God with gold and silver, citing Daniel 11.38. Okay, so we see the Lutherans say, look, we've got great church attendance. We've got sermons that actually do something that can be understood and that have value. And yes, we've got prayers and we've got candles and we've got all sorts of adornments in our church too. That's fitting for reverence. But the ceremonies per se, that is the ceremonies in and of themselves, are not the real adornment and reverence in the church. It's faith that grabs onto the promises of God. And the reason we would put all these great adornments around is to try and attend to that faith, to try and show how important things are, to try and drive home the gospel, not just with words, but also with sounds and with images and with pictures. But if faith, if the gospel is not the focus, then you can do all those things till the cow comes home. You haven't done any true worship at all. So then as we continue talking about reverence here, then I think a necessary thing that we also have to talk about then would be irreverence. 
Do you have anything from the confessions for us on that? I do. You know, it's in this section when we're arguing against the Roman Catholic opponents, we're making a lot of strong statements against the stuff that you probably see in your church at home, right? Candles, altars, your pastor wearing vestments, pulpits, beautiful churches, the kinds of things we've come to expect. So it might seem strange that we're attacking these things. Are we just iconoclasts or deconstructionists tearing down the traditions that came before us? No. And in fact, it's not a free-for-all. It's not do whatever you want because faith something internal is all that matters. If we go to the formula of Concord, this is near the back, and we can look at two sections. We can look at the epitome, that's the short version, and the solid declaration, that's the long version. This is formula of Concord 10. And I'm going to go to the epitome, and we'll have you, Sean, go to the solid declaration. This is epitome 10, paragraphs 4 and 5. Epitome 10 is on church practices or adiaphora. And we're going to talk, I hope, in the future in detail about this whole controversy, what adiaphora are, these things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. But suffice it to say, these are the ceremonies that are not commanded by God. This is not eating and drinking the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. This is not using water in holy baptism. But this is things like candles, things like vestments, the particular order of readings, all of those. And here's what our confessions have to say about irreverence. They say just briefly at paragraph four, we believe, teach, and confess that the community of God, that is the churches of God, in every land and at every time, according to its circumstances, has the power to change such worship ceremonies in a way that may be most useful and edifying to the churches of God. Nevertheless, all frivolity and offense should be avoided in this matter. Special care should be taken to exercise patience toward the weak in faith. And if you want to look at a solid declaration 10 paragraph 9, I think we'll get that perspective as well. Sure. So this is a solid declaration paragraph 9 of article 10. We believe, teach, and confess that the community of God in every place and in every time has, according to its circumstances, the good, right, power, and authority to change and decrease or increase ceremonies that are truly adiaphora. They should do this thoughtfully and without giving offense, in an orderly and appropriate way, whenever it is considered most profitable, most beneficial, and best for good order, Christian discipline, and the church's edification. Furthermore, we can yield and give in with a good conscience to the weak in faith in such outward adiaphora. Paul teaches this in Romans 14 and proves it by his example. See Acts 16 verse 3, 21 verse 26, and 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19. There's thought involved in these ceremonies. They have to be chosen for their edification. They have to be chosen for the sake of the weakened faith to help bring them along. And they can't be offensive or rude or irreverent. They have to be fitting. Now, it's true. This is the place where we get to argue. And that's really what the word adiaphora means. We're allowed to fight about these things because this is where our human reason gets to make decisions. That doesn't mean that all ceremonies, all musics, all adiaphora are equal. In fact, we definitely have to use our wisdom in order to determine what would be better. Some may have to fall away. That's the whole point. Some may have to be changed or added. We heard already about the adding of German hymns, not just Latin that nobody, or at least among the common people, would understand. But it can never go against what the purpose of worship is. It can never harm the preaching of faith. It can never be contrary to the good works that faith will produce. That means we certainly can't do things that are common 
when our God himself is holy. We can't treat him as if he's not the Lord of all or as if he's not our powerful king. We certainly can't act as if our Lord's death were not a great cost to God or as if he were now our friend just for the sake of our niceness. No, it's got to be in accord with who God is. And we can learn that kind of roundabout way through the worship of the Old Testament. We see how cautious God is. We see how dangerous it is, frankly, to be a priest in the Old Testament. You could never get the idea that God is tame or that he's just our friend and and he kind of is a casual, pull-my-finger kind of God. At the same time, we want the preaching of the justification that Christ has won for us and that he's giving to us in his word and his sacraments to be at the forefront of what we do. So suffice it to say that while the true reverence is faith, that doesn't mean that our ceremonies can be irreverent. Relating to this then, you're right, we're going to have an episode digging deeper into this, especially matter of Adiaphora. But just very briefly here, as it relates to that true reverence being that of faith, do you have maybe a few examples that you would cite of maybe some of these things that have been added or subtracted over time within the Lutheran confession of evaluating these things? Sure. I'll start with one of the most hotly contested even to this day, I think, and that is the practice of elevating the elements in the Lord's Supper. If you go across the different churches of the Lutheran Reformation, there was always a fair amount of disagreement about this. There was a time when Luther said he wanted to keep it. There was also a time when Luther, the same guy, said he wanted to get rid of it. There was a place in northern Germany where they were fighting against the Calvinists who didn't believe that the Lord's Supper really was the true body and blood of Christ, where they thought it was very important to keep the elevation. And there was places in Wittenberg where they were dealing more with the Roman Catholics, where they said, we got to get rid of this. What is the elevation? It's holding up the body and the blood of Christ so that everybody can see them. What is that a testimony of? In fact, the pastors would usually hold it up and then afterwards they would kneel in front of this bread and this wine. You only kneel for God himself, right? You would never bow the knee even for an earthly king, certainly not in a worshiping manner. So if we are kneeling before the bread and the wine, what testimony are we giving? We're giving the testimony that this is exactly as the Lord's words say, this is my body, this is my blood. But there was all sorts of abuse in the Roman Catholic Church where they thought the priest was offering it up to God by lifting it towards God. You can get that impression sometimes. Or simply that watching it, right? When they would ring the bells and hold up the bread, some people thought, well, as long as you got to see it, then you really had done the outward work, and that's all you needed to be reverent and a faithful Christian. So many people wanted to get rid of it. There's freedom in that. And you notice how the confession you have to make might determine the difference, whether you really need to emphasize the Lord's presence, because there are people who might doubt that or be in disagreement with that, or where there are other concerns. Something that's less controversial. Here's here's one I can think of in our churches that is absolutely an innovation. It was not done in Luther's day. It was not done before Luther. And that is our practice of singing the Nunc Dimittis, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. This is a song of Simeon. We sing it in our churches after Holy Communion. That had never been done before. Were they sinning by omitting it for the entirety of Christian history? No, by no means. Are we sinning by adding it? No. It serves a very good purpose. It teaches us that just as Simeon had held the infant Christ in his arms and was trusting in this Savior, the salvation that God had prepared before the face of all the world, 
So he was ready to die in peace according to God's promises. And if we've tasted the Lord's Supper, if we've had his sacrament, again, not just by the outward work, but truly in faith, believing what it is and receiving it for our benefit, we are ready to die just like Simeon did. It's a marvelous little uh, song to sing there. It happens to be straight from the Bible. But the singing of it in that place is neither commanded nor forbidden. If you ask me, I think it's one of our best little innovations, and it's one that I would like to keep. Absolutely. And a beautiful innovation that also worked its way into our funeral rite then as well, that we included there as, once again, as you said, that beautiful confession of we are prepared to die in the faith. And so definitely want to keep that. All right, we'll get more into Adiaphora next week as we have you back again to take a look at that specifically. But with just a few minutes left in the show today, how do we want to wrap up here looking at reverence? We want to wrap up, I think, by getting this full picture where we have faith and all of its attendant fruits, its ceremonies, its uh, attention to the teaching, and frankly, something that we've skirted around in this whole discussion today, participation by people. It's not just that we want them using their hands folded to pray or using their mouths singing, but that we want their hearts and their minds engaged as well as their bodies and their mouths. And I think the best place to see this is to go to Apology Article 15, or sometimes it's labeled 8. All right, and we'll take paragraphs 38 through 44 here. We cheerfully maintain the old traditions made in the church for the sake of usefulness and peace. We interpret them in a more moderate way and reject the opinion that holds they justify. Our enemies falsely accuse us of setting aside good ordinances and church discipline. We can truly declare that the public form of the churches is more fitting with us than with the adversaries. This fitting word could be reverent, right? That's exactly what we're arguing. If anyone will consider it in the right way, we conform to the canons more closely than the adversaries. Among the adversaries, unwilling celebrants and those hired for pay, and very frequently only for pay, celebrate the masses. They sing psalms, not that they may learn or pray, but for the sake of the service, as though this work were a service, or at least for the sake of reward. So you see how we've talked about the opponents and how they're doing the motions but they have no attention to faith either among the priests nor among the people. What about among us? Among us, many use the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. They do so after they have been first instructed, examined, and absolved. The children sing psalms in order that they may learn. The people also sing so that they may either learn or pray. Among the adversaries, there is no catechizing of the children whatever, about which even the canons give commands, Among us, the pastors and ministers of the churches are encouraged publicly to instruct and hear the youth. This ceremony produces the best fruit. Among the adversaries in many regions, no sermons are delivered during the entire year except during Lent. Yet the chief service of God is to preach the gospel. When the adversaries do preach, they speak of human traditions, of the worship of saints and similar trifles, which the people justly hate. Therefore, they are immediately deserted in the beginning after the reading of the gospel text. A few better ones begin now to speak of good works, but about the righteousness of faith, faith in Christ, and the comfort of consciences, they say nothing. Indeed, this most wholesome part of the gospel they rail at with their reproaches. There's a way in which our confessors are being a little tongue-in-cheek and maybe taking a few low blows here. But the main point comes through. Among the Roman Catholics, at least at this time, the attention to faith and the preaching of the gospel, which produces faith, That's the true chief service or divine service that we're interested in. 
None of this was their concern, and only the outward actions, most of which were human adiaphora, human ceremonies. These were the focus of everything they would say. No wonder, then, church was lifeless. It was irreverent, at least by biblical standards. But now we go on about what, uh, among the Lutheran churches, it was quite different. On the contrary, in our churches, all the sermons are filled with such topics as these, repentance, the fear of God, faith in Christ, the righteousness of faith, the comfort of consciences by faith, the exercises of faith, prayer, what its nature should be, and that we should be fully confident that it is powerful, that it is heard, the cross, the authority of officials and all civil ordinances, the distinction between the kingdom of Christ or the spiritual kingdom and political affairs, marriage, the education and instruction of children, chastity, all the offices of love. From this condition of the churches, it may be determined that we earnestly keep church discipline, godly ceremonies, and good church customs. I love that last phrase, especially following this giant paragraph talking about Lutheran preaching and how expansive it is, right? The accusation is we're leaving things out because maybe some of the ceremonies, especially those that give the impression that the Mass is a sacrifice or somehow our work meriting salvation, these have been dropped. But what has been kept are most of the ceremonies, and what has been added back in is true preaching, both from the pulpit and from the pews and the organ and the choir, the hymns, in languages that people can hear, so that faith is nourished, and then prayer and thanksgiving and good works, all of the things that God wants as fruits of that faith, are actually increased among the people. And they can be participating both with their hearts and their minds and their voices and their bodies. That's the full picture of Lutheran worship, reverent worship, that we're after. I think one more little section, and we probably will be all set for today. And that's the introduction to the abuses corrected by the Lutheran Church in the Augsburg Confession. This is right at the end of Article 21, but it's really introducing the next section, which starts to talk about both kinds in the sacrament, the Mass, things we've looked at before. So this is uh, 21.15, or in some, it's a whole section on abuses, paragraph 6. It can easily be judged that if the churches observe ceremonies correctly, their dignity would be maintained and reverence and piety would increase among the people. And this comes from the same section where Melanchthon says our churches don't descend from any article of faith held by the church Catholic. That we are not interested in making a new church or abandoning the old things or distinguishing ourselves by being just different than everybody else. But we're interested in returning to a church that has truly reverent worship, that has plenty of ceremonies that we've inherited from tradition but one that uses those ceremonies to nourish faith by preaching the gospel, by putting Christ into the hearts of the hearers, by letting them sing of Christ and participate in the worship service, and so that Christ's institution, not just some institution put together by men, would be the focus of our divine service, our church. That is well confessed. Thank you to Chaplain Sean Denzer for joining us for Concord Matters today and discussing with us why Concord matters for reverence in our worship in the Christian church. And thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 